Well, good morning. Uh, before we begin, I, I just want to mention something, and I don't know how she'll feel about this, but it, we, we can't move on before we give thanks to God with Suzanne here with us this morning. Definitely an answer to prayer. So, um, so we're going to find out this morning if preaching is like riding a bike. Um, I, Honestly, I, I do feel a little nervous. It's been a while. Uh, we ran into some folks from church, and we often do, at Frostbites, the ice cream place in Jonestown. And if you ever find yourself in Jonestown for ice cream, uh, I encourage you to do so. Make sure you get the large. They don't give you enough. <laughs> so. now, actually, I get a kid's size because that's about all I can eat. So, uh, But I was talking to this person it was just last night, and they said, you know, they have very high expectations for my message this morning because I've had three months to prepare. <laughs> so, and just so you know, I haven't been preparing for three months. Uh, but there is some things that have been on my heart that I want to share with you. So, this morning, I, I want us to begin looking into the scriptures, into what theologians often referred to as uh, the perfections of God, we want to look at one of these perfections. And by perfection, I mean those attributes that are ascribed to God as being essential to His divine nature. That without it, God can't be God. There is one that has particularly grabbed my attention this summer as I was able to take time and rest. And so I want to give you a little context into what was going on. Uh, in early June, as I began my sabbatical, I, I had a stack of books sitting next to my bed, and um, I, you know, I just kind of went through. And I, in my mind, I, I kind of had it spaced out what books I wanted to read around what time. And I think I read about one book a week uh, through the sabbatical. And the first few books that I read dealt with the pastoral call and some of the challenges that exist. So the first two books that I read focused on this. And one was called Dangerous Calling. And, um, you know, so I'm reading these books and, and they were sober reminders about some of the pitfalls and challenges that can exist in pastoral ministry. And most of those pitfalls are tied into the, the sinfulness of our hearts. And so just making sure that we have um, a right understanding about our calling and the accountability that we need and all those things. And so those were some pretty sobering, heavy kind of things to digest and, and, and think through. And so as I finished those, I, I read a biography, and I thought, well, this will be a good break, you know, just kind of mixing it up a little bit. And so I, I began reading a biography of a pastor and a theologian that I had respected from afar. Um, the, the biography, uh, he is now home with the Lord, but this biography was written within the last year. And um, some of the things that kind of there was an affinity to, to kind of read and understand his life a little more was uh, he grew up in Pittsburgh. He grew up in South Pittsburgh in the South Hills, and he was a huge Pittsburgh Steelers fan. And so, you know, today's a big day, um, you know, so, um, and, and he began a ministry just a few miles from where I grew up. 
he eventually settled in the Orlando area of Florida, which is now where my mother-in-law lives. And um, in fact, she played the organ at his church. Um, The man is R.C. Sproul. And he was a catalyst behind Ligonier Ministries, which Ligonier, Pennsylvania, is just east of where I grew up. And he pastors uh, St. Andrew's Chapel in Sanford, Florida. And my sister-in-law providentially is here this morning. Um, so she might be kind of examining some of the things that I say with scrutiny. Um, but she works for Ligonier Ministries. And she knew R.C. personally. In fact, he married her and her husband. Uh, as I read his biography, there was something that caught my attention and something that still has it. And it wasn't all the books that he had written. He wrote a lot of books or the doctrines that he defended, and he defended a lot of doctrines of the faith. But it was this awakening that occurred in his life while he was in college uh, to God's holiness when he became aware that God is certainly a holy God. Now, if you know anything about R.C. Sproul, if you've read any of his books or if you've listened to any of Ligonier Ministries' uh, tapes and series, like you can download an app and they have all of his talks curated on it. Um, He is well known for a book that he wrote in 1985 called The Holiness of God. And it was this perfection of God that grasped my attention. I, I read about what was going on in his life and just some of the things that he carried throughout the rest of his ministry. And I started to dig a little deeper on this idea that God is certainly holy. Now, that seems obvious to us, right? As, as Christians, yeah, God's holy. I mean, we sing the song, holy, holy, holy. We know these things, but do we really know that God is holy? Do we live that way? The question that I was wrestling with was, do I really live my life as if God is holy? I do at times, but do I really live my life under the shadow of a holy God in all things, in all ways? And if God is holy, what does it look like that He is holy? In the biography, Sproul's quoted what God repeated most, and it isn't just in Isaiah 6 where the angels are singing, holy, 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 but often in Scripture we read, in fact, in the Old Testament, there is an oft-repeated title for God, the Holy One of Israel. And so what is God most repeated? He says, we understand the least. This idea that God is holy is not just... Uh, a call to one of his characteristics. You know, if you were to say, who is God? We would say that he is holy, he is gracious, he is merciful, he is loving, he's a God of justice, a God of wrath. And we go on and on that there are certain characteristics that make up who God is. Um, But a, a call to understand his holiness and to understand that God is certainly holy is a call to understand the essence of who he is. In his essence, God is holy. Without holiness, God is not God. He's not capital letter G. He would be a small letter G because he'd kind of be like us. 
There would be nothing that would separate him, set him apart from who we are. And so we as people who walk by faith in the power of the gospel are to be a people who live under the constant awareness that our God is holy and majestic. And as we will see in a few weeks, because we're going to kind of walk through this theme over the next three or four weeks, God calls us to live a holy life because He is holy. We read in the book of Leviticus, and it's quoted again in the book of 1 Peter, and we're going to look at this verse in a few weeks. Be holy, for I am holy. And so basically stated, holiness means separation or to be set apart. A holy thing. Like if you think about the tabernacle and the temple and the, 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 the parts that made up that, there, there were certain things that were separated, set apart as holy to the Lord. And so to be holy in that idea is to be set apart. To be set apart from all that is common or unclean. It's often defined, holiness is often defined in a negative light, in, in, in light of what is common and unclean. But in respect to God, can you put the, guys, can you put the mouse cursor in proclaim? There we go. A holy God means not only that he is separate from all that is unclean and evil, but that he is positively pure and distinct from all others. That he's pure and distinct, set apart. He's not like us. He is the Lord. Exodus 15.11 highlights this. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. Who is like our God? Have you ever paused to consider that? Like, who is like our God? And when we take the time to stop and and pause and, and, and consider the greatness and majesty and holiness of God, it, it does take my breath away. Like, it, it really, like, who are we to know a God like this? Because God is holy, He cannot condone anything evil, and He cannot have any relationship with anything that is evil. To be holy means to be greater than anything else in the whole world. It means that God is different than us. It means He is higher than the high and deeper than the deep. He is called holy because He is pure. And that is why all people must bow before Him in great majesty. It's vital for us to have a deep understanding and a high view of the holiness of God in our lives. It's vital. And it's not just because... For me, I had this 
great awakening over the summer, reminding myself of the holiness of God. But as I, I was thinking through, meditating through the Scriptures and seeing this theme all throughout the Scriptures of the holiness of God, my encouragement, my burden for you is that you would just have a greater awakening that wherever you find yourself, wherever you go, whatever you're facing, you have a holy God that is set apart from all. And in a beautiful way, this holy God has been merciful to sinners like us to invite us in and to encourage us with the glory of His majesty. We live out of the reservoir of what we know. And without a high view of holiness, we are prone to struggle in the vain pursuit of a personal righteousness that is worthless in God's eyes. Holiness and God's holiness kind of takes us away from ourselves. It separates us from our ambition, our effort, our righteousness, our do-goodness to try to please God. And having a view of the holiness of God and who He is in life is that reminder to us that He's so set apart, we can't do anything to bridge that gap. And so for us to have the holiness of God in our lives, we just need to surrender to what He has provided. We need to surrender to who He is. And last Sunday, as we were awakened to the presence of, God, of God's holiness in light of our sinful character, we were reminded, and this was touched on in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16, as Pastor Dustin skillfully brought us through that book and wrapped it up last week. If you remember in Habakkuk, right, this prophet that was struggling with his call and the challenges that were faced in, in Israel, and he was lamenting to God, complaining to God, frustrated, how are these things going to happen? Why are these things happening? And we read in Habakkuk that he went into his upper chamber, and, and he had this kind of like tower experience, right? He's, he's kind of letting it all out before God. And in Habakkuk 3.16, we read that when God is speaking and God shows up, what happened to Habakkuk? I heard and my inward parts trembled at the sound. My lips quivered. Decay enters my bones. And in my place, I tremble. That is a proper response to being in the presence of a holy God. Like we don't, we should not trivially walk in to the presence of God saying, hey, bud, how's it going? He's holy and majestic and set apart. And yet, in all those things that we know that are true about him, he says to us, come to me and trust me in what I've provided for you. And he not only invites us into his presence, but then he challenges us through the power of the Spirit that he gives us. He says, live as I live. Be holy as I am holy. And so for the next few weeks, I would like us to consider this uh, perfection of God on his holiness. Maybe to recapture, or maybe for some of you for the first time in your life, to realize that the God we serve is completely holy. When we consider the depth of a subject like this, we come to realize that a study in the holiness of God has the ability to strip away all of our pride. To stand in God's holy presence, presence means that we come to the understanding that apart from His grace, we are dead. 
But we also come to understand that through God's tender mercy, He invites unholy people like us into His holy presence. And so if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Isaiah chapter 6. We're invited in to witness a very specific incident on the holiness of God. In Isaiah 6, uh, some have wondered if Isaiah 6 should really begin in Isaiah chapter 1. Because Isaiah 6 is really the call of Isaiah the prophet. It's the, the challenge that God puts in his life to... Um, to speak for him. We know um, that this man, Isaiah, as we're introduced to him in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, that he, he is the son of Amos. He was a, uh, a man that was confronted with the holiness of God. And from, from what we know and from what extra biblical material tells us, Isaiah was a prophet that came from nobility. Uh, he, he wasn't this uh, John the Baptist kind of living in the wilderness eating locusts. He came from nobility, and God had called him, and he lived, as, as we know, Isaiah lived as a righteous man. He had faith in God, and, and God showed up in his life in a very critical time and it invited him to a call that Isaiah considered, and he's like, I, I can't. I can't fathom that you would call me to do this, but I will trust you, Lord. In this call. In fact, Isaiah 6 1 says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. The indication is this took place during the death of a monarch. Right now, England is going through that process as they were coming to grips with their queen who has reigned for 70 years. How many of you are less than 70 years old? Right? Like, that's a long time. But this is what was going on. King Uzziah. What do we know about this king? Well, Second Chronicles 26 tells us that King Uzziah was a good and godly king. He reigned for 52 years. He started reigning with his father. It was handed off to him. He reigned by himself. And then something happened in his life, a tragic event, where he spent the last maybe up to 10 years of his life where his son reigned and he was still alive. But for the time that he was in charge on the throne in Judah, the kingdom of Judah, the southern nation of Israel, He was a good and godly king. Verse 4 of 2 Chronicles 26 indicates that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He led with dignity and strength until the end. Like Solomon. Solomon started off really well. He was a good and godly king. Asked God for wisdom. Led the people with wisdom did great and marvelous things for the Lord. And then he took his eyes off the Lord and he started living for himself. This king does the same thing. If they had newspapers at the time, 
it's like he was beginning to believe his own press. Like all the good things that were going on, it went to his head. And he was like, yeah, I'm a good king. I have it together. Look at how my subjects honor me. Look at how God has blessed us. And so what does King Uzziah do in Second Chronicles 26 that brings a judgment from God? I mean, how can you go from being so good to living in such despair? Well, in Second Kings or Second Chronicles 26, he goes into the temple and he begins to offer, he wants to offer an offering in the temple to the Lord. And what happens? Well, the priests confront him. And they're like, listen, that's not your job. Your job is to sit on the throne and trust God in your leading of us. Our job as priests is to worship, uh, offer the worship to God. It was very clear in the scriptures what you did and how you did it and who could enter the temple and who could offer certain sacrifices and who could offer uh, certain aromas to God and, and the worship of God. And the king could not do that. And so we read in Second Chronicles 26 that a part of his tragic fall, the judgment of the tragic fall and offering uh, this bad sacrifice is that he was inflicted with leprosy on his forehead. And as a leper, he had to live outside of the community, and he lived alone for the final years of his life, judged by God. Now, he was, when he eventually died, buried with the kings. But this is what's going on in Israel when Isaiah receives this vision, this question of change in leadership. What's going to happen to the nation? What's going to happen? Because this good and godly king that we knew is no longer with us. It's in this moment that God visits Isaiah. It's in the year of the king's death. Um, Historians believe it's around 740 B.C. In fact, what's interesting is in 740 B.C., at the, the, the same year, while this king died there was a young boy born named Romulus who was one of the brothers that founded the city of Rome and the empire of Rome. And we're going to see in Isaiah's prophecy, if you read the rest of the book, just all of the the trouble that is going to come upon Judah for their disobedience in the Lord and that there will be all these nations that will come and rise up against them. And we see the reality of that in the final empire of Rome that judges Israel ultimately by killing their Messiah. This is under the great backdrop of upheaval that God says Isaiah Come and see who I am. The king of Israel is dead, but the true king of Israel lives. 
the earthly king, he's not with you anymore. But I want you to know, Isaiah, that I am on my throne, and I will not move, and I am separate and above all others. One king was dead, but the ultimate king lives forever. And he isn't going anywhere. Another thing to know as you look at Isaiah 6, and and I, I don't know if you pick up on these kinds of things when you read the Bible, but I want to highlight it for you. If you look in verse 1, it says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. Right? L-O-R-D, capital L, lowercase O-R-D. I saw the Lord. Now, this title is the, the Hebrew title Adonai. It means sovereign one. That He is the king. It's a title for God. But when you jump down to verse 3, you read, And one called out to, the, to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, if you look at that word Lord, the way that it's typed for us, and you compare it to how it's typed in verse 1, do you see a, a little bit of a difference? It's capital L, and it's lower, but it's capital O, capital R, capital D. It's minor to our eyes, but it's hugely significant as they are translating Scripture to help us to understand. They're communicating ideas to us, thoughts to us. And this is what we read when we read the Lord. It's the the word in the Hebrew, Yahweh. The name of God. The name of God was so holy to the Jewish person that you didn't speak it. It was profane to speak the name of Yahweh. So what we see is Isaiah has an experience with the sovereign Adonai, Yahweh, who is the Lord, the great I Am. In fact, we're introduced to this title in Exodus 3 when Moses is invited to the burning bush. And the bush speaks. And he says, I am that I am. Yahweh. Here, Isaiah has a grand vision of the supreme sovereign of all creation. The Lord himself sitting on his throne in the true temple, not an earthly temple. Now, just to kind of clue you in, right? We often think of God in the Old Testament as the Father, the unseen, the spirit. Isaiah is caught up into a vision where he saw the Lord, experienced his glory, witnessed his holiness. And the question that I had was, okay, so what's going on here? Because we read in the Old Testament that you cannot see God and live. In fact, when Moses wanted to see the glory of God on top of the mountain, what did God do? He says, I can't show my glory to you. In fact, if you see the full picture of my glory, you're gone. You're dead. So what did he do to Moses? He said to Moses, okay, here's what I'll do for you. Hide yourself in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to pass by. And you can catch the tail end of my glory. 
Like you can't see the full part of it. You can see the backside of it. In fact, in the Hebrew, for the backside means hindquarters. And what happened when Moses caught just that glimpse of the glory of God? He came off the mountain. His face was shining so bright. They're like, Moses, cover your face. We cannot look at you. So who is Isaiah experiencing here? He's experiencing Jesus. He is a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ. In fact, we read this in John 12, 41. In John 12, 41, they're in the upper room. This is right before the Lord's Supper. Jesus is foretelling his death. He's in the final week of his life. And, and, and he's teaching and he's revealing who he is as Israel's Messiah. And we read that the Jews were dull. They, were, they just did not understand who Jesus is. And in John 12, 41, John the writer, John the apostle, John that was there hearing and seeing and observing all of these things, writes, these things Isaiah said because Jesus was quoting from Isaiah And John, as a Jew, knew the prophecy of Isaiah. These things, Isaiah said, because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. This is a reference to Jesus. Isaiah experiences the Lord Jesus on the throne. The Lord is sitting on his throne in heaven, and the train of his robe filled the temple. It's clear to Isaiah that he's in an uncommon place. He wasn't transported to the temple in Jerusalem and had the vision. He was caught in a vision to the heavenly temple. Because God, in 1 Kings 8.27, is said that he cannot live in temples made by human hands. And he sees the Lord. And we read in verse 2, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So there's angels flying around the throne of God. But they're, they're not just regular angels. The regular angels in the scriptures are called cherubim. Isaiah says that he saw seraphim. What's interesting is this is the only place in all of the Bible where the seraphim are mentioned. He witnesses these angels. What do we know about them? Well, they don't just have two wings, right? We need to throw away every vision of a, um, a Hallmark card or a precious moment statue where there's little cherubs strumming their harps. These angels have six wings. And listen, they're created creatures. God created them. God doesn't waste anything in creation. They have six wings. You might think, well, don't angels only need two wings? But each set of wing has a specific purpose, to cover their face. Why would these two wings need to cover their face? Because they're in the presence of a holy God. And his glory is so amazing. 
that they have to shield themselves from the glory of God. Two, help them fly. And then there are two that cover their feet. That seems strange. Why would they need wings to cover their feet? Well, it's very likely that the wings that cover their feet is a sign of understanding and respect because the feet were viewed in the Old Testament culture as being dirty. It's what hit the ground. And so what did God tell Moses at the burning bush? Take your sandals off when you come into my presence. And so these these wings likely cover his feet. But they're flying around. And what are they doing? Verse 3, we read, And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And whether they were singing or chanting or shouting, whatever it was, these angels are shouting back and forth to each other, holy, holy, holy. The Lord Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Here, the sovereign Lord is acknowledged continually for who he is as the Holy One. Now notice, they say holy, holy, holy. Three times in succession. Now some have said that each holy refers to a member of the Trinity and this is a Trinitarian verse. I think if that's True, it's a minor consideration. The word repeated, and you read this in the scriptures, in fact, from a Hebrew point of view, and even a Greek understanding in the New Testament point of view, anytime you have repetition in the Bible is of great importance. It's, a, it's a, um, an understanding of emphasis. We're clued in that what is being said is of the greatest importance. Kind of like when Jesus said in the New Testament, truly, truly, I say unto you. So it would be like me saying, I love my wife. And I do. I don't need to write it on a board to tell her this. Or, I love my wife. Or, I love my wife and put some color on it. Or if I really want to let her know and let the world know, I love my wife. Like when the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy. They're cluing us in and Isaiah is capturing this vision of something that he's never experienced. And he is drawn into the understanding that God is certainly holy above all. Like, this is not an accidental, this isn't a casual, this isn't anything except a uncommon God inviting a common man into his presence and him in Isaiah observing the great holiness that he has. It's also interesting to note that of all the perfections, of all the characteristics of God that we read about in Scripture, only God's holiness is repeated in the emphatic. 
holy, holy, holy. Isaiah didn't get caught up in the throne room and, and hear love, 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 grace, 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 justice, justice, justice. He's invited to see, and the angels declare that God is certainly holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. The creation made by the Creator reveals and declares the glory of God. We read in verse 4, the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. This holy God on His throne, hearing this holy chant of His holiness, the, the temple that he is in, the foundations of it were shaking. And Isaiah is observing all of this. And the, the temple began to fill with smoke. And so what, is, what happens in verse 5? Isaiah is, is observing the holiness of God. And he says, Then I said, Woe is me. Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. How many of you use the word woe in your everyday vocabulary? Woe is me. Now, the word woe comes from the Hebrew expression oive. Some of you know what that means. It's an announcement of prophetic judgment. What does Isaiah say when he's saying, whoa, who's he announcing the prophetic judgment on? Himself. It's not on the nation. He's like, oh, whoa, is the nation because God is holy. He's standing in the presence of a holy God and observes, observes all of it. And the only thing that he can say is, I don't belong here. I am not capable of standing here. Why? Because he's a man of unclean lips. When Isaiah captures this vision what he comes to understand is that he is seeing God for who he is and it truly allowed him to see himself for who he is. Listen, this is why it's important to have a proper understanding and a high view of God and his holiness because it keeps everyone in check. God is God and we are not. And it should humble us to our core that this holy God invites us to come. Isaiah is a man of unclean lips. He lives amongst people of unclean lips. Now, Jesus said in the Gospels, it is out of the mouth that proceeds all sorts of evil. Isaiah knows his mouth is tied to his heart. It's not just that his mouth is dirty. His heart is impure. And what does he say? Woe is me, for I am ruined. 
The word can also be translated, I am undone. The word literally means to be pulled apart at the seams. My wife likes to sew, and she has a seam ripper tool. It'd be like if you took one of the items that she had just finished sewing and just pulled it apart until the seams burst, and all you saw were the threads, right, breaking apart. That's how Isaiah felt as he stood in the presence of a holy God. I am ruined. But notice something here. God neither condescends and says, Isaiah, no big deal. Good for you for acknowledging that, but don't worry about it. Okay, I get you feel that way, but you can come. No big deal. God neither condescends to Isaiah, nor does God the judge deal instantly with Isaiah and strike him dead because he saw the holy presence of God. God would certainly have the right to do so. He's holy. And in his holiness, God cannot be in the presence of evil. He's holy. He's set apart. So what does God do? Verses 6 and 7. The one of the seraphim, and and oh, by the way, the word seraphim comes from a Hebrew word for seraph, meaning burning ones. So whether or not they're on fire, flying around, we're just caught into this picture of what these angels are doing. One of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. So what does God do for Isaiah in this moment when he is confronted with the holiness of God? He provides atonement for his sin. The seraph grabs a holy or hot burning coal from the altar and he touched his lips. How many of you ever bit your lip, burnt your mouth, anything? It hurts. Right? Because the lips are like one of the most sensitive organs, right? I don't know if it's an organ. Anna, it is? Okay. Okay. So it's it's been fact-checked already. (laughs) So hot coal, like hot, hot coal. Like, we're not talking campfire has burned down. You got some members that have a little bit of glow. We're talking hot coal touches his lips. You know what would happen, right? They would instantly be burnt and nasty and all that stuff, right? How many of you love that image? Like, I just image like burning a marshmallow, like that kind of thing. But it's an act of atonement. Pastor Ray Ortland wrote concerning this act of the seraphim. He says this, A seraph peels off from his flight around the divine throne, diving straight for Isaiah. He's holding a burning coal that he took from the altar with tongs, but not because it was hot to him. After all, the seraph is a burning one. He took this coal with tongs because it is a holy thing. It belongs to the place of sacrifice and atonement and forgiveness. 
But this holy thing touches Isaiah's dirty mouth, and it does not hurt him. It heals him. And what we must see in the context of the whole Bible is that this burning coal symbolizes the finished work of the Son on the cross. What atones for our sin? Who forgives our sin? The Son who laid down His life on the cross for our sins. This experience with the holy sovereign God of the universe was Isaiah's consecration moment. He was set apart. He had this grand vision of God's holiness. God atones for his sins, sets him apart. And what does Isaiah then do? Well, if you read in the the remaining verses, in verse 8 we read, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Right? That's in the plural. God is speaking. Who will go for us? Then I said, Isaiah is speaking, Here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of the people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. These are the same words that are quoted in John 12 as concerning what Jesus said. And the people's ears were dull and they did not hear. And their hearts were insensitive because they had already turned themselves off to who God is. Isaiah has seen the king, the true king. And this holy experience shook his life. It allowed Isaiah to take the immediate steps that were necessary. In that moment, God sent an angel to minister to him and remove his guilt And so what does this mean for us, right? You might think, this is all great. You've painted a great picture. What does it mean? So what? Well, here's what I want you to leave with today. God's holiness has not changed. It never will. Nor will God violate His holiness to accommodate an unholy creation. None of us can say, Yeah, you know what? This is the age of grace. No big deal. No, God is certainly still holy. And yet, in spite of that, our holy God makes provision to take our iniquity away through the cross of His Son. And as a result, forgives our sin. Listen, may we never lose the awareness that God is holy. And yet, in that awareness, may we be like Isaiah and acknowledge our sinfulness and confess it to God. Do you see that? Atonement and forgiveness came when Isaiah acknowledged, I don't belong in the presence of this holy God. He understood who he was in God's presence. And when we understand that, and when we stand before God, I am undone. God mercifully comes to us and says, here is what you need, child, to come to me. The healing that God provides through the cross is the only means that we can be brought into the presence of the holy sovereign of the universe. So I want to pray for you. And if you're a person today that 
this is coming alive to you for the first time. I want to encourage you that if you believe in the promise and the gift of Jesus, that he came to take your place, to die on the cross for sinners like us. If you believe in him, God takes away your guilt. There is no more shame. And you don't have to tiptoe. You don't have to kind of close your eyes and say, I don't belong here. But you can go confidently into the holy place, not on your own, but claiming and believing in what he, the Holy One, has done for you. And it happens just like that. And so I want to pray for you now and ask God to help you have a greater understanding of his holiness. Let's pray.